There were actually several times that my family tried to intervene, but they didn't really, I don't think they even knew to call it abuse. They just knew there was something not right. Mm -hmm. And yet when, when they tried to intervene, not knowing it, what it was they were dealing with or how to go about doing anything about it, it was ineffective. Mm -hmm. There was no way that I could have gone and accepted their help because of the situation I was in was so extreme at that point that there was no way for me to actually accept help without putting myself or my family in extreme danger. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and the decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Some episodes ago in episode four, I interviewed Tom Griffin about his walk across America that took about six months. This episode is one in which I interview Meredith Cherry, who's traveling across the United States on horseback to spread awareness about domestic violence. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, Meredith. Thank you. Since I have so many questions for you, um, I guess I should start with how long have you been someone who has a horse? Well, I um, I would say not very long. So uh, Apollo is actually my first horse, but I've been horse crazy my whole life, and I went to school for horses. I got my bachelor's in equine science. So I've been a horse person for uh, either I wanted to be a horse person or have been a horse person my whole life, but I haven't had my own horse to uh do things with until I got Apollo. Okay. And so did you always know that you eventually wanted to have your own horse? Oh yeah. Since like my earliest memories were involving wanting a horse and, you know, asking for a pony for Christmas and that sort of stuff. Um, as many little girls do. And I thought I could keep him in our suburban backyard and it would be just fine. <laughs> but, uh, um, I lived in a very suburban area. I grew up in Southern California in the heart of uh, suburbia. So it was not feasible to have a horse until I became an adult and could get one myself. So how long did you, how long did you have to plan and save and arrange? Like, when did you realize you were going to actually achieve this dream? Well, when I went to uh, university to get my equine science degree, I was pretty sure at that time that as soon as I graduated and could get a good job in the horse industry and save up, then I would get a horse. But uh, my life kind of fell apart at that point. And so I was not able to get a horse until, um, so you just said that you, things fell apart in your life. You're, you know, you had a mission to get the horse and you felt in university that it was going to happen soon. And then you said your life fell apart. Can you talk a little bit about what happened? Yes. So when I was in university, I met, uh, my uh, who would eventually become my husband. And uh, he was, uh, he turned out to be an abusive person. And so when I graduated from college and we moved in together and got married and whatnot, it quickly became apparent to me that my dream of working in the horse industry was not going to happen. Um, he was very controlling. Uh, he was abusive in every different kind of abuse that is ever listed in kinds of abuse. So it was financial, it was emotional, sexual, psychological, and physical. 
uh, and some other kinds that are a little more um, obscure. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, in all kinds of abuse, no matter what the type is, it's all about controlling the victim in whatever way it is that they can use to control the victim. So it might be uh, forcefully controlling them physically. It might be psychologically um, brainwashing uh, them to be controlled in some particular way. It might just be scaring them or upsetting, you know, like making them just so emotional uh, that they have to do whatever it is that their abuser wants them to do. Uh, so there's all sorts of different tactics to control a person in an abusive relationship. And in my um, my relationship, part of that was to control what I did with my life, uh, what I did with my degree and my, my um, dream career, that I would never get that. And so um, for many, many years, I thought that I would never be able to be around horses of my own or any other horses, that it was just not going to happen because I was now stuck in this relationship and I didn't know how to get out. I didn't know what to do about it. I was just stuck. And when you think about your life up until you met him, where do you think you were on the confidence scale? Like how, what kind of a person do you think you were prior to meeting him? You know, I've thought a lot about that. Like how did this happen to me? Because there are lots of ideas and theories and um, whatnot about what makes a victim, uh, what their background might be and that kind of thing. I didn't really fall into any of the typical uh, characteristics that you think of. Like, I didn't come from an abusive home. My my childhood was very happy. Uh, I was not around any sort of violence like that, that, you know, sometimes that is a, a cause because then uh, the victim, that's what they're used to. Either that's mm-hmm. what they think love looks like or they think it's normal or whatever. But I wasn't like that. Um, well, it's interesting because when you, when, you set, when you responded just now and you said you didn't feel that you fell into those uh, typical patterns that people talk about, when I asked mm-hmm. the question, I, it's funny, my thought was you sounded like you were a confident person prior Well, and here's the funny thing, like, I think anyone who was looking at me at that point would have said, oh, yeah, she's a confident person. I was a straight A student. I had, you know, everything going for me. I had a dream. I had, uh, I was in a good college, you know, I had all my future ahead of me, all that kind of stuff. I had friends and whatever. But inside, I was very shy. I was very introverted, very low self-confidence as far as like I didn't feel like I fit in with anything it was hard for me to make friends um I moved away to go to school uh, halfway across the country so I still had friends but they were not nearby and it was hard for me to make new friends at my new school Um, and so all of these things together uh, did put me in some risk of being an easy target for mm-hmm. an abusive personality. You were vulnerable. Yes. And do you, when you think back on it, if it's not too uncomfortable to do so, do you remember what it was like when you first started dating who would become your husband? Was he, did he seem like the guy for you? You know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. Um. So hindsight is always twenty twenty. Looking back, I can see red flags. But at the time, I was just so happy to have someone that loved me, that cared about me. And initially, and this is common with a lot of abusive people, uh, initially he was charming. 
he was uh, loving and wonderful and almost too perfect. Mm -hmm. Uh, He knew what my motivations were. He also knew what my buttons were. And so initially he could, you know, treat me in every way that I wanted to be treated. And then over time, take those things away and um, push all my buttons just right, but then know exactly how to bring me back around and be loving again and that kind of thing. I don't know if that makes sense. It's no, hard it, to explain. It does. Yeah, it's, it's complicated. Uh, an abusive relationship is not a straightforward thing. And so we dated for four years all through college. And uh, it went from being perfect. He bought me flowers. He made me mixtapes. And we went out to dinner and all sorts of nice things initially. And then over time, he became more and more controlling. Uh, But the control was always framed up in some way that was maybe reasonable seeming at the time. For example, if I wanted to go out with my roommate and we were going to go dancing and he, he didn't like dancing, but he wanted to support me because he was a good boyfriend. And so he'd say, Oh yeah, you go dancing with your friend. I'm just sad that you don't want to spend time with me. And then I would feel bad the whole time I was dancing. Mm -hmm. And So that was the kind of things that initially happened that are red flags that I didn't know to watch for. I didn't know what it meant. Uh, I just thought he cared about me and was genuinely sad that I didn't want to spend time with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wonder if you have a thought about this, just out of curiosity, if any of his behavior or his end goal was pre-planned or do you think knowing what you know about him, he... He was he, do you think, someone who always did this with people? I was definitely his first uh, victim in a romantic type of relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but during the time that we were together, uh, dating and then married, um, I could definitely see this as a pattern with friends. Uh, with his family, with uh, whoever it was that he would interact with personally. Uh, It was definitely a pattern with him that he needed to be in control. And anyone that was not someone he could control or manipulate, then that wasn't someone that he wanted to be a friend with. Mm -hmm. How did your family interact with him? Not very much. They have always been supportive of me, of my choices and my desires and whatnot. And so they tried very hard to understand why I was in love with this person and, uh, you know, not tell me not to date him or whatever. But they also didn't really have a background themselves in recognizing abusive relationships. They didn't have any real knowledge to prepare them to know what their daughter was going through mm-hmm. uh, to, in order to see the signs themselves and uh, in order to help me. Mm-hmm. Even so- when it got really bad later and it, Go looking back on it should have been obvious to everyone that had any, you know, any of my friends and family looking at what was going on from the outside really should have been able to see warning signs. It wasn't something that any of them knew what to look for. So how would they know what to see? Was, do you think there a part of you that would have listened at that point when you say it got really bad if there had been a sign from anyone that they could see you were hurting, that you might've had the strength to jump out of there faster? 
Yes and no, but it's tricky. Uh, that's complicated too. There's there's many reasons why victims stay with their abuser, and fear is a large part of it, or at least it was for me. There were actually several times that my family tried to intervene, but they didn't really. I don't think they even knew to call it abuse. They just knew there was something not right, mm-hmm. and yet when when they tried to intervene not knowing it, what it was they were dealing with or how to go about doing anything about it, it was ineffective. Mm-hmm. There was no way that I could have gone and accepted their help because of the situation I was in was so extreme at that point that there was no way for me to actually accept help without putting myself or my family in extreme danger. Wow. So can you take me to maybe the point of no return? How long were you married? And when you say things got really bad, did that lead to the end of your marriage? Or can you take me back a little bit to those last years or months or whatever they were? I presume you're trying to frame up the question of how things changed from that to not being mad. Well, no, I'm just wondering, you know, how you got out. No, I'm curious, you know, how long were you married? And I'm curious, you know, you just said things got really bad. And I just wonder like, what was, what What was really bad? Yeah. What, what happened that, well, and I guess, you know, I think I didn't mean for it to like tie into the title of my podcast. It was actually, (laughs) I wasn't aiming for that. Just so you know, I was more like, I really am curious after all these years and I don't know how many, I mean, how long were you Mm -hmm. with him all told? Okay. So we dated through college. So four years and then we were married Well, I'm going to oversimplify here, but all told, we were together for about 12 years. Okay. And there were no children? No, we never had children. And I'm very grateful about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the first four years were increasingly more controlling, but nothing overtly abusive that I could be like, oh, wait a minute, there's definitely something wrong with this relationship. Uh, Once we moved in together and started forming a life together and got married, then it became a little harder to extract myself. I was now invested in this relationship. Um, But it got really bad several years after that. Uh, We moved to a very remote property the nearest town was four miles away and it only had a teeny tiny post office and that was it. It didn't even have a payphone or not that anywhere has a payphone anymore, but <laughs> then there were still payphones. Um, it didn't have a school. It didn't have a store or a gas station or anything. It was just a post office. And if you wanted any sort of anything except a mail or letter, you had to go 30 minutes drive uh, down the the interstate to get to anywhere. And so it was very isolated. And that is something also that's somewhat common with abusive relationships that they, the abuser will try to isolate their victim. It might be more of a social isolation. They might not move to the middle of nowhere, but it's mm-hmm. not terribly uncommon to do so. And so once I was out there, then I was even more trapped because we had one vehicle and he held, he held the keys. And there was no way for me to actually leave. Like, I just couldn't. There was no way I could walk for safety. There was nowhere that I could go. We didn't have, we weren't friends with the neighbors because he discouraged that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was uh, extremely isolating and scary. And um, I was basically at his mercy there until I could figure out some way to get away. But that took me years to figure out. Yeah. I, did you not, you didn't work at that time? 
We were self-employed uh, in a... So I went to school for equine science and he went to school for uh, crop science. Mm -hmm. And so we were farming. Um, I see. And uh, so it was a farmland. That's why it was in the middle of nowhere. And uh, so we were self-employed working together on the farm. Yeah. So when you think back to the way maybe your mind and your body felt back then compared to now, like, you know how sometimes different parts of our lives, like different eras of our lives have sort of a, a really overwhelming sense to them, you know, Mm -hmm. like maybe pain or worry or, you know, sleeplessness, you know, whatever it might be. When you think back to those really, really isolating years, like What's the overwhelming sensation or thought you have about it? That's a very good question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. Um, and I talk about this a lot. So it's, uh, <laughs> I usually get the same questions. Um, overall, if I had to pick one thing that was the, the key part of my sense of being at that time, would have been watchfulness. I had to be on guard all the time with everything in such an extreme way that I didn't even know how to not be that way anymore once I left. Mm. Like I had to watch every single word that came out of my mouth. I had to watch every single movement, not just what the movement was, but how it could be perceived like was I moving fast or slow or or you know or was couldn't let my hand shake and show fear or you know I couldn't express anything of how I truly felt because I had to always be seeing how it was going to be perceived and was it going to result in um, some additional abuse mm-hmm. um anything that I said could be used against me later as part of the psychological and emotional abuse. And so I had to be careful with everything I said, even if it wasn't going to be a problem at that moment, it could be later. Uh, I had to be constantly on guard of how he was at that moment and where he was. Um, And just, and also of the environment. Was there anything in the environment that might set him off? Uh, you know, a phone call or someone driving down the road or the weather or did the chickens get out or, you know, some sort of silly little thing. Anything really could have set him off. And so uh, I was just constantly, constantly watchful of everything and it's exhausting to live like that. It really sounds harrowing. I, it when you when you describe it that way, it makes it very real. Was he ever happy? Were you ever happy with him at those at that point? Right before you know, I'm wondering if during the midst of everything getting worse and worse, if there was still anything good about the relationship. There was, um, and that is a that's how the abuse pattern works in like 99% of abuse cases there's this what they call the cycle of violence where there's a violent episode and again that doesn't have to be physical but whatever the kind of abuse is there's an episode and then there's uh, the honeymoon period where the abuser is extra nice and apologetic and says it'll never happen again. And they're loving and kind and that person that you originally fell in love with. And then as the cycle continues, it becomes less and less nice and more and more scary. And eventually you have another full blown episode and then it goes back to the honeymoon period. Mm-hmm. Now, over time in an abusive relationship, the frequency increases. So these episodes will happen 
more and more close together and the honeymoon period shortens. And so where initially there might have only been an abusive episode once every couple of months or something like that, then over time it will get to be where it's several times a day. And so you're just going through this exhausting cycle again and again and again throughout the day. And so, yes, there were nice periods, but they were very short-lived and they were very um, infrequent. Mm -hmm. So how did you finally leave? About a half a year before I was able to actually leave. My husband got arrested for something entirely unrelated to domestic violence. He was never, ever arrested for domestic violence, even when the police were called. Um, not by me. I couldn't have called the police. It would have just, it always did. And I knew it would have resulted in more violence. So I never called the police. But any time that the police somehow got involved, um, they they never did anything to protect me. Um, and being out in the middle of nowhere, I didn't have any neighbors to rely on. I couldn't really be in contact with my family without him knowing or my friends. So um, where was I going with that? Um, six months. He okay. Got arrested, so yeah. six months, yeah. so six <laughs> months before, um, before I was able to leave, he got arrested for something entirely unrelated to domestic violence. And when he was in jail, it was only for about 24 hours, but it was the first 24 hours in years that I was alone, that I did not have him there. Um, you know, that I, did, I didn't have to be watchful anymore. I didn't have to um, always be orienting all of my words and actions and everything to how he was going to react. Mm -hmm. And it was enlightening. I had not realized to the extent that I was doing this because it had become progressively worse over time. And, uh, it's uh, like boiling a lobster. You say, yeah. you know, yeah, I had like, no idea I was being boiled alive. And when he uh, was gone for that 24 hours, you, you got just like a tiny bit of new oxygen in the home, right? Like uh, figuratively right. speaking. And so I was, I was suddenly saw with clarity, with some level of clarity, at least what was going on. Like, wow, I was able to do my morning routine in a quarter of the time that it normally takes. Like literally, that was normally it took me the longest time to get like dressed and eat breakfast in the morning because he was always there doing something or another to just make it awful. And I was able to just get these things done. And it was amazing. I could just get dressed and eat breakfast and feed the chickens. <laughs> and it was great. And so... I could have physically left at that point, but it was so incredible. I just didn't even, I had to process it. Like I didn't even realize how bad it was and I didn't know what to do about it. Mm -hmm. And so when he came back from jail, uh, then I tried to explain to him that like I had this revelation, like things could be better. <laughs> uh, so I finally realized how bad things were and that they could be better. And I thought I could fix them. And now that I knew what was wrong, I could fix it. And that wasn't the case. And so it took me another couple months to realize that I couldn't fix things. And that I just needed to leave. But then being so isolated, it was, it was very difficult to leave. I did try to leave several times, but it was a failure. Mm -hmm. And I ended up 
um, physically not being able to leave the several attempts that I made initially. And so when I did leave, it took a lot of planning. Uh, there are resources available online for to help people make escape plans, but I did not have those resources, so I made my own. Um, but there are resources available online for if anyone is in a bad relationship and needs to be able to leave, there is help available to do that if you can access it. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I didn't have that, but I was able to at least make my own escape plan and enact it. And it was the single most terrifying thing I have ever done. Um, but it worked and now I'm free and I have been out of that relationship now for seven years and, uh, I will never let that happen to me again. What was that like? Where did you go first? How did you, how did you do that? And, and where is he? And do you worry about him or is he like, how do you know that you're safe and how do you go on? So initially, I did not feel safe. Like, well, so let me back up. So when I left, it was a complex sort of plan that I had to come up with to actually leave. Uh, I had to be able to, first of all, have control of the car keys, which he almost never left alone. Um, And I had to be able to get in the car and drive away before he could stop me, which meant he had to be in a certain place on the farm compared to where I was and where the vehicle was. So I had time to actually get in the car. And there were all these little nuances I had to think about for the plan to make it work. Um, It was a lot more complicated than just driving away. Uh, When I did leave, I immediately called my family and asked if I could come home and they helped me get home, uh, which was halfway across the country. So it wasn't Mm -hmm. like I could just, you know, drive into town. Mm -hmm. Um, So they helped me get home and uh, I went to a therapist and talked through things and my therapist helped me figure out what I wanted to do with my life now that I was free and could do whatever I wanted And I decided at that point that I wanted to travel and I wanted to finally have a horse (laughs) of my own and that I was going to live those dreams. And traveling is nice and having a horse is nice, but they're usually mutually exclusive. And so I thought, how can I fix that? And the answer for me was to ride a horse around the country. And while I was at it, I was going to talk about this issue that I had just lived and hopefully inspire other women to find hope and healing and teach people about what domestic violence is, uh, what resources are available, uh, help promote whatever local resources I came across on my travels and talk to everybody that I could. So that's what I do now. You, um, you got out, you started getting help, you formulated a plan and within years you had your horse and you'd started your project. Is that right? It took me four years to uh, go through the therapy and make a plan and come up with my dream and then prepare for it. Mm-hmm. So I spent several years of actual research and preparation and horse training and stuff. Mm-hmm. So my ride is a 48-state ride, and that means that I'm going everywhere, basically. And so when I rode to the state where he was living at that time that I rode past, I actually had to ride within about a mile of where he was living. You mean your ex-husband? Yeah. Uh, And 
That was a very nerve-wracking day, to say the least. I wasn't sure if he was aware of my ride, of my route. I did at that point hold off with the social media for about a week so he wouldn't know exactly where I was if he was following. Uh, But still, that's not a very big distance on a horse. Mm -hmm. Um, I go about 70 to 100 miles in a week, so it wouldn't, you know, I wasn't posting, hey, I'm riding down the street. That's a mile from where my ex lives. But at the same time, he knew I was within an hour's drive. So um, it was, there was about a month in there as I was getting closer to that area and then right past him. And then another couple of weeks after that, that I was very nervous about what would happen if he found me. Um, but it was fine. Luckily I have a big network of people, uh, who are following along on Facebook and, uh, you know, my, my own personal network that I'm in contact with every day for, uh, on the phone and whatnot to also help make sure that I'm safe. How many States have you done so far? So, so far I have ridden to 31 States. And that's over 8,000 miles. And I've been riding since January 1st of 2017. And uh, I expect to be finished in about another year. And how do you spend, uh, how do you rest your horse? And how did you find your horse? I actually found my horse on Craigslist, um, (laughs) which is not really a recommended way to go horse shopping, but it worked. Um, And so he is a half Mustang and half Peruvian Paso, which is a Spanish breed of horse. Um, He is a a Palomino. He looks rather a lot like Trigger, uh, Roy Mm -hmm. Rogers' horse Trigger, um, which I think is pretty cool because I was always a Roy Rogers fan. So his name is Apollo, and he is a big, tall Palomino, and he is, uh, he carries everything. He carries me and all my bags, but I try to pack very minimally, so I don't really have any more than a typical backpacker would take into, you know, a weekend camping trip. we travel about 10 to 15 miles a day at a walk. And sometimes I also walk, so he doesn't have to carry me all the time. And we take lots of breaks for him to graze or me to stop and talk to people or stop and get something to eat or whatever. Um, and then in the winter, we take the winter entirely off. So he gets to fully rest up and get ready again for another year of travel. Is it hard to be, I I think you told me in an earlier conversation that he's over in New Hampshire for the winter. So is that hard at all to not see him? Yes, he's in New Hampshire for the winter because that's how far we made it this year. He stops and stays somewhere different every winter. (laughs) And then I go uh, fly home and see my family and get stuff done for the winter and then fly back in the spring and we keep riding. So I don't get to see him except in photos for the whole winter. And that's really hard. We spend basically all day, every day together for the rest of the year. And it's, uh, it's, you know, we're very well bonded and he is my friend. And so it's really hard to be away from him for the winter, but I know he's enjoying himself having the time off and snoozing and eating and he's got some buddies there. So, <laughs> um, How do you plan your trip in terms of where to, you know, put him for the night? You know, how do you eat? Do you like, what are the logistics of traveling with a horse across the country for those weeks and months that you're traveling? It can get complicated. Mostly it's a matter of networking. 
either the good old fashioned way or on Facebook. Uh, I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram too, but those haven't been very useful as far as networking. So mostly I do my networking through just the people I meet, asking other people they know, and through Facebook uh, to just look down the road for where there's someone else I can stay with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I stay with strangers. I stay with strangers every night. I very rarely camp, and when I do camp, it's in a designated camping area like a fairgrounds or a park or something. Um, so it's uh, it's just a matter of connecting with as many people as I can, and I post my map on the internet and uh, just talk to everybody until I can find where I need to go. And does Apollo need an actual stable or does he, can he take the night anywhere? Oh no, he's been in all sorts of places that are not really horse places. As long (laughs) as there's a fence and grass for him to eat and water for him to drink, then he is fine. Uh, Usually I stay with horse people just because that's how it's worked out. But he has been in quite a few backyards in (laughs) regular neighborhoods. Uh, one night he was in a a basketball court at a church, uh, and that was probably the weirdest one to have him in the basketball court. Um, right. And so when people see you, if they are not aware of your trip before they see you and you're coming down the road with Apollo, either walking next to him to give him a break or on or riding him, um, how do they know, do you have any signs that you're carrying or are you enough to have people stop and just ask about what you're doing? Except for in the middle of the summer when it's too hot for him to wear the sign, he does have a banner on his rump. But <laughs> uh, even without the banner, it's really unusual to see someone riding a horse down the road mm-hmm. in most places. And even in more rural areas where people maybe still ride their horses on the road, even there, it's pretty unusual to see someone riding down the road. Plus, we just look different. He's got all these bags on him. It's like the difference between seeing somebody um, riding their bicycle around town in their, you know, their Lycra color-coordinated outfit versus somebody that's bike is all loaded up with a trailer and, mm-hmm. and saddlebags and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, uh, it just looks different. Yeah. And you know that person's going somewhere and it's <laughs> just out for exercise for the day. Right. Uh, so, so we do definitely get lots of people stopping to talk and ask what I'm doing and that's Apollo and he loves the attention. It's uh he's gotten to the point where if someone stops their car that he stops, like, I don't even have to tell him to stop. It's just like, Oh, look, someone's coming to visit me. And he will go over and stick his head in their car. Like all the way because he wants attention. So what do people ask you or what are you able to share with them? Like, uh, you know, and, and, and have you had moments of, or conversations with people you've met on in these last couple of years while you've traveled, that you can tell what you're doing has hit a personal note with the people who have stopped? I meet people every day who have experienced domestic violence themselves or have a family member that's gone through an abusive relationship. And These are not just people that are talking to me because of my cause. A lot of them don't even know what I'm doing. They just see, you know, somebody riding a horse on the road and want to know what's going on. And so they'll stop and talk to me and I tell them and then I hear the stories. So it's such a common problem that everyone, everyone knows somebody who's been in an abusive relationship, whether it's themselves or someone else. They might not realize they know someone, but they do. And once we get to talking, if they don't realize they know someone who's been in an abusive relationship, and I start telling them about the signs to watch for and the red flags and stuff like that, then there's always this light bulb moment where they're like, oh, 
actually, I know, you know, my cousin and my neighbor and, you know, like this, this whole list suddenly comes up of people. Mm-hmm. But more often it's, it's, I talk to people who have been in an abusive relationship or are still in one and don't know what to do, or maybe they just, they got out and they're fine now, but they never really had anyone to talk to and they didn't know, you know, if it was their fault or if, you know, it was weird what they went through or um, all sorts of things. And they just never felt comfortable talking about it. And so now I'm here and they talk to me. And so it's nice to be able to do that for people. And what do you hope that meeting you helps them with? Or, you know, obviously you're shining a light on this problem. And what do you think are the actionable steps people can take after understanding what your mission is? A big thing for me is just getting people talking, not just to me, but generally. It's a silent problem. Nobody wants to talk about it. It's uncomfortable. There's a lot of stigmas about saying you're a victim. There's, it's just uncomfortable. Who wants to talk about that sort of thing? Um, But it's so important to talk about because without this conversation being out there, how is anybody like I was when I went to college supposed to know what to watch for? If I had heard this sort of conversation, uh, you know, even if this podcast had somehow been able to be produced back then and I heard it, maybe I wouldn't have stayed in that relationship because maybe I would have realized what to watch for and that what I was experiencing was a problem when it was still early on in the problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe later, if I had heard what other people had gone through in an abusive relationship and how they got help, maybe I would have realized where I could get help and that I didn't have to wait until I could just help myself. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all all sorts of benefits to having this be a regular part of conversations, to have people share their experiences and what they went through, how you know, what what they experienced early on, what they experienced later on, how they got out, what they learned, what they felt, any of this stuff is all so valid and so useful for other people uh, that we can't end this being a problem until this information is just talked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you see yourself as brave? Some days. <laughs> um, I, I guess so, but it's not, if I was asked to list 10 characteristics of myself, I'm not sure that I would put it on there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think anyone who has become a survivor from an abusive relationship could be called brave. Beyond that, uh, riding a horse down the road. And when I say down the road, I don't necessarily mean like small rural streets. We've been through several major cities downtown. (laughs) Uh, We've been on highways. I've been on an interstate. Like these are not little quiet roads. And that's some people would say it's brave. I'm not sure I'd call that brave. It's probably just stupid, but <laughs> I'm not saying I'm stupid. I'm saying the action. Mm-hmm, I understand. So I'm not sure that, that, that that's really brave, but you know, I don't know. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe it's stubborn because you had this dream when you were really young and you had to forget about your dream and then you made your dream come true as a survivor and now an advocate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the full circle in that is, is inspiring. Well, thank you. Yeah. So, so can you talk for a minute about the podcast and where listeners can find you and how they can, you know, keep up with you and your work? Yes. 
So my podcast is called Have Horse Will Travel, which is also the name of the books that I've been publishing so far about the ride. Uh, every year I publish the short, the best short stories of the previous year's ride. And there's um, four volumes now and a podcast. So it's all called Have Horse Will Travel. And it's all sorts of fun stories about my travels and, of course, information about domestic violence and interviews with interesting people that I've met along the way and all sorts of cool stuff like that. Okay, so that's the best place to find out about you. Yeah, that and Facebook. Great. I'm I'm so happy to, I feel really glad that I learned about your story, and I'm so happy that you agreed to come on to the podcast, and I know that you've told your story so many times, and, and I appreciate the depth and insight you offered to me when telling it this time. Well, thank you for letting me come on and tell my story. There's uh, there's so much involved with it that I never run out of things to say. And it's yeah. always good to spread the message as far as I can. So thank you. Yeah, I'm really grateful to you for, for being my guest. Thank you so much. Hi, thanks for listening to this episode of And Then Everything Changed. Since you're here, you probably appreciate stories that take you into another person's life and their experience. My friend Becky Odd Jennison has a podcast that does just that. She began the Death Dialogues Project to help her cope with her grief, and now she interviews guests about their losses and helps to remember and celebrate their loved ones' lives. You can find the Death Dialogues Project on most podcast platforms, and she has new episodes every week. Once again, that's called The Death Dialogues Project. Thanks for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode and other interviews you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please do share it with your friends and take a minute and rate and review so that others can hear these stories too. Thanks for listening.